Well, here at Watermark, we're quite accustomed to uh, talking over the music, right? So uh, that is my favorite creation hymn, not written by Chris Tomlin, but by Laura Story, but just his version tended to make all the money. (laughs) Uh, My name is Ray Bolin, and I'm Vice President of Probe Ministries. I've been attending here with my wife, Sue, who's right over here at uh, Watermark for about seven years now. And... uh, I am basically the science speaker for Probe Ministries. Probe is a, a worldview and apologetics ministry, and all of my educational background is in biology, so I'm wearing my critter shirt today. Um, I bought this shirt in Hawaii, but none of these ver- birds are native to Hawaii, so uh, go figure. Australia, South America, that's it. Um, but I'm a critter guy. I mean, the plants are here, but they're just background. Um, I always love going to the zoo, and so every opportunity, I just love being in God's creation and uh, enjoying the critters, as I like to say. Um, Also, if you attend 1115th service, you may also recognize this. This is my Grand Canyon hat. Uh, I've hiked the Grand Canyon about seven times, a couple times with the Institute of Creation Research. I have uh, guided a couple of other groups, uh, both a group of teachers from Trinity Christian Academy, a group of my son's friends, um, a group from my church. It was the last one I did about four years ago. And... um, Grand Cane is just an awesome, wonderful place, and uh, there's much to teach us there about the different views of creation, which we're going to talk about some today. Um, Christian views of science and earth history. I, the, the, the reason this class has the uh, highest number of attendees is because just because of timing. Um, not only did we read Genesis in the Journey back in uh, January, early February, but uh, Men's Summit Bible Study also studied Genesis 1 through 20. And in the group I was in particularly, uh, there were lots of questions about the science behind some of this stuff and who, who believes this and what about that, but we just dealt with the theological questions. And so I figured there were lots of folks who had questions from that, so this seemed like just a good time to offer this particular presentation. Now, what I'd like to just introduce you to initially is that there is a broad diversity in the Christian community about how to understand and interpret Genesis 1 through 11 particularly. Generally, once you get to Genesis 12, the evangelical community is is on target. We're all on the same page. But when you talk about creation, when you talk about fall, when you talk about the flood, when you talk about uh, the Tower of Babel, there's lots of diversion in the evangelical Christian community about that. And even in our seminaries among very qualified and evangelical Old Testament professors. So here's just a a view, uh, a glimpse of this. Andrew Snelling is a geologist from Australia. He is a young age creationist. This is his book, Earth's Catastrophic Past. He said, the Bible never claims to be a textbook on history or science. Then later on, same paragraph, he says, but if the Bible is the word of God, then it must be truthful in its entirety, even when it touches upon matters of history and science. That's a general enough statement that 
I don't think many people would disagree with that, but when he applies it to Genesis, then there's, there are some issues in some people's minds. And then you have this from theistic evolutionist Howard Van Til, who used to teach at Calvin College up in Michigan. He said, I believe that God so generously gifted the creation with the capabilities for self-organization and transformation that an unbroken line of evolutionary development from non-living matter to the full array of existence Existing life forms is not only possible, but has in fact taken place. So you can assume that his understanding of Genesis 1 particularly is going to be dramatically different than Andrew Snelling's. Yet both of these individuals would claim to be Christians, born again, uh, evangelical. At least at the time that Van Til wrote this, he was. He's kind of drifted a little bit since then. But... Um, that's just to give you an idea of the diversity and the breadth of opinions that are available here. Now, I'm only going to be addressing three views. Now, what, I, what we need to understand is that I'm going to be approaching each of these three views in fairly broad generalities. Each of these has many subcomponents within them. They might think about the days of Genesis a little differently. They may think about the kinds of Genesis differently. They may look at the flood a little differently. Um, or, and so there's lots of uh, diversity, if, if you will, within each one of these. And I won't be addressing that very much at all, but just trying to give you the broad outline. So the first one I just call the recent or literal view. Some might also call this scientific creationism. They may call it uh, uh, young earth creationism or young age creationism. Uh, progressive creation is the second view. And sometimes that's known as the day-age theory or... Old Earth creationism is another phrase that's frequently used. And then the last one has traditionally been referred to as theistic evolution, the sense of the idea that God has used evolution as his means to create. But recently, in about the last 15, 20 years, a new phrase has come up that they think is a better description. They call it evolutionary creation. The reason they like that better is because in this uh, phrase, creation is the noun and evolution is the adjective as opposed to theistic evolution where theism seems to get a, a second, second seat, if you will. So some of them prefer evolutionary creation. Now, I'm also going to go about this in a very deliberate fashion. First, I'm going to talk about the biblical and theological foundations of all three of these views. So I want you to be able to compare and contrast them at, 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 at one time concerning their biblical and theological foundations. Then I'll add their scientific perspective, essentially based upon their understanding of the theological and the biblical foundations, how did they then apply that to the scientific facts and evidence of today? And then I'll talk about the strengths of each of these views as perceived by those who hold this view. In other words, what I'm labeling a strength are some of the primary reasons that people are convinced this view is true. But I'll also be talking about what I'll call weaknesses of each of these views. And those are from, perceived from those who are outside of that view. In other words, what convinces other Christians that the other view is not true? 
What do they what do they see that just says that can't possibly be the case? So that's what I mean by strengths and weaknesses, and that's an important distinction to keep in mind. I'm not providing you my perspective on the strengths and weaknesses of each view. I'm taking the strengths from within that view itself and the weaknesses from those who do not hold that view. Now, uh, my intent is to relay this information to you as plainly and as objectively as I can. I don't want to try and influence you by little hints along the way that, well, I think this is goofy or I really like this or any of that sort of thing, um, because I want you to have the opportunity to evaluate the evidence for yourself. What I hear as a complaint quite frequently from those in the Christian communities, I've traveled and spoken on this, this question, um, is that far too often they're only hearing from people who hold this view and they're always trying to convince you that I'm right. And there's a sense of pressure that people feel that, gosh, if I don't agree with this person, I must really be stupid or unbiblical or uh, you know, maybe I'm not even a Christian or something like that. So I want to keep it open. And when we get towards the end, I'll, I'll tell you what I think uh, about some of these things. Some of you who have heard me teach previously, you may already have an idea, so keep quiet. <laughs> um, also, I, I'm just uh, fasten your seatbelts. Um, I do have a full two and a half hours with you. We will take a 10 or 15 minute break. That is if I remember. If you really need one, just... Shout out, okay, you know, I'll try to do that. Also, I have to, I'm supposed to hand uh, out some evaluation forms at the end, um, and that's also something I tend to forget until almost everybody's out of the room. So if I tell you I'm supposed to do this at the end, maybe one of you will remember, like, Sue, my wife. Well, I can do that. You can remember, okay, good. Um, I've often taught this session as a, a one-hour presentation. I've got two and a half hours approximately, and I've added a few details along the way to kind of fill things out a little bit better because I'm trying to accomplish a lot here. And so as a, as a born and raised Yankee, I can talk really fast when I want to, but I've learned um, now with almost 40 years here in Texas that that's not always appreciated in this part of the country so but we've got a lot to do today and uh, again I want you to feel free to ask questions and what I am going to do is at the end of each one of these sections I will stop and ask if you have any questions about what I just covered for the three views of that area so if you do have a question jot it down or write yourself a note and I will open up for questions for just about five minutes or so at the end of each one of these sessions and then after I get through this I'll have some wrap-up material to go through at the very end again just depending on time so I'll be giving you little auditory reminders that I'm still up here speaking and uh, <clears throat> hey it's Saturday morning it's been a long week right and uh, gosh you're someplace at 9.30 and you've got pens in your hands and all kinds of things. All right, recent creation. Basically, this is the view that holds to each one of these days, that six days of creation, as basically literal 24 hours, 
24-hour periods of time. And that what God spells out in each one of those days in Genesis 1, on day one, he separates the light from the darkness. On day two, he separates the waters from the expanse, waters above, waters below. Day three, he separates land from water and creates vegetation. Day four, he creates the sun, moon, and the stars. And I I, I really like that part because the stars are mentioned as an afterthought. Oh, and he made the stars also. Wow, there's how many tens of thousands of billions of those things, and they're an afterthought. Uh, Day five, he places fish in the sea, and he places birds in the air. And on day six, he populates the land with the critters, these things. Um, Well, actually, these are day five creations, but you get it. What they will tell you is that essentially they hold to the plain and simple reading of the text. Some will even go so far as to say that we're we're not really interpreting this. We're just reading it. And this is just the plain, simple understanding of what's being talked about. Again, they will talk about six approximately 24-hour days. We do know that the rotation of the earth is slowing down very imperceptibly to all of us. It's not going to make any difference in any of our lifetimes or our children's or grandchildren's or great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. But... It is. So they might not have been exactly 24 hours, but approximately. All of God's creative work is done in those six 24-hour days because specifically it says, and God rested from his work. Now that doesn't mean that God never did anything after that. No, he's resting from his creative work at that time. And very importantly in this view, um, pain, suffering, and death enter the creation after the fall, and not just in the context of human beings, but they believe across the board of animal, animal creatures particularly, those who have in the flesh the breath of life. So that would include uh, basically things created on day five and day six. Those have the breath of life, and so everything created there Pain, suffering, and death entered their worlds also after the fall. So there is no carnivory prior to the fall. Snakes did not have poison prior to the fall. Some would say snakes didn't even exist before the fall. Okay, they, they lost their legs at the fall. <laughs> um, so that, this is a very, very important dividing line, especially for uh, recent creation uh, adherence. Um, And we'll talk more about that as as time goes on. As I mentioned, uh, Genesis 1 really just doesn't have to be interpreted. It's It's a plain historical narrative. That's what it is. And it's telling you a story, and it's telling you, uh, relating to you what God did, specifically when and how he did it. And they also make a point that the early church fathers, which were the church leaders and writers from the first to fourth centuries after Christ, almost universally held to this view of a recent creation and a universal flood. So they add a historical perspective here that says, well, even the history of the church tells us that this is the view most people have held. They will point to Martin Luther and Calvin and some of the reformers particularly who also seem to hold to this kind of recent creation in the very very near past. In the six day, six 24-hour days, um, the Hebrew word yom, which is the word for day, does have a range of meanings. 
But they say there are several things in this context which point to a 24-hour day. And the 24-hour day is determined by that context. The phrase, and there was evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day, is giving you a reference to a period of light and a period of dark that we're familiar with as being a 24-hour day. There's a numerical adjective. There's the first day, second day, third day, fourth day. Every time elsewhere in the Old Testament where a number is assigned to the singular version of Yom, it always has meant a 24-hour day. And Exodus 20.11 uses the plural of Yom. For that, that's basically about the Sabbath. It says, for in six days the Lord God made, created all that is the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Seems fairly inclusive. And again, when the word for yom in plural is used every other time in the Old Testament, that always is referring to 24-hour days. So they seem to say that we've got a very strong biblical and hermeneutical case that what's being talked about in Genesis 1 are literal 24-hour days. That's a big part of their perspective. And then pain, suffering, and death. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's a very important issue. Uh, if the fall is not responsible for pain, suffering, disease, death, and if that had existed for hundreds of millions of years, as some would indicate, before man even existed to sin, then the only source of that pain, suffering, and death in the created world is God himself. And that's what they would say that Theologically, that simply cannot be the case. Almost every theodicy about the idea of where does evil come from has to do with man's choice and man's sin. Well, what you're admitting to, if you're holding to hundreds of millions of years of earth history and all these animals dying and eating each other, we've got lots of evidence from the fossil record of all that stuff happening. We've got evidence of uh, tumors on dinosaur bones. We've got uh, evidence of teeth marks on other bones that are clearly being gnawed on and chewed. Uh, So there was disease, there was pain, there was suffering, there was death. So God could be the only source of that. So again, the fall, you can see, is a very, very important uh, issue for the recent creation folks. Now, progressive creation, biblical foundations. Now, for these, there's some latitude, and I have to allow for some of that here. Days of Genesis are indefinite periods of time. They could be millions. Some of them, especially the first or second day, could be billions of years in length. God's creative acts intervene throughout this history. So they're not relying upon evolution. but God is creating, but just over several billions of years worth of time. And what's described in Genesis 1 for each of those indefinite periods or days is simply God's peak activity. Um, I I just remember the first time after I I trusted Christ in college, I was already a zoology major, and uh, I kind of stayed away from Genesis for a while. I I knew there was trouble there, and I just (laughs) didn't want to deal with it. And when I read through it eventually, um, I said, you know, couldn't you have given us a few more details here? I mean, this is pretty bare bones. And um, Well, the old age creation or progressive creationists are basically saying, well, yeah, God was doing lots of other things during all those periods of time, but what's communicated in Genesis is just the peak or more significant activity. 
what God chose to tell us about. Um, and essentially, we, we find that in the rest of Scripture, they would say. When you look at the historical books in the Old Testament, especially First uh, and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, every battle, every prayer, every prophecy communicated is not contained in there. <laughs> What is in Scripture is what God says, essentially saying, this is what I want all my people to know. This is what I want to have preserved for all to understand and to be, to be a part of and to have that a part of their uh, growing in Christ. So, again, the Bible never claims to be all-inclusive of all the events that happen. So they would say that we have uh, precedent for that idea. And there's also an idea that's fairly recent, I'd say, within the last 30 years that is a little bit different than this idea of a day-age theory, and this is something called the structural framework theory. Now, this is, this is based primarily on looking at other ancient Near Eastern creation texts and finding some similarities in those texts with the Genesis account and trying then to relate, well, why would the Hebrews have used this structure that's similar to the Babylonian or the Sumerian or other or the Hittite uh, creation view, and what's, what's significant about those uh, similarities? Okay, we're going to go back to uh, the day age there here for a minute. These are some of the things I've added at the last minute, and I realize, okay, so your indulgence is, is, is appreciated. <laughs> Um, they would say particularly that those who hold it a day age, that day six is longer than 24 hours. When you look at all the activity in day six in Genesis 2, they would maintain that there's no way all of that could have been accomplished in just one 24-hour period, especially in the daylight. What happens there particularly that they look at is that God marched all of the animals created on day six in front of Adam so he could name them all. Now, if you look at all the different kinds, that's, that's a lot of critters. And yes, Adam was the most intelligent human being after Jesus, I believe. Why? Well, 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 he had no time for mutations to enter in with fouls up all of our brain work. <laughs> We've got plenty of those things running around in our heads. Um, and so, yeah, he could have named those things pretty quick. But there are other things that were going on. He was already beginning to cultivate and keep the garden. Okay? He was walking in the garden with God. Uh, he was put to sleep for a period of time, and took, God took a rib out of his side, made Eve, and who else knows what happened the rest of that day after Eve came along. But, you know, they just say it, they needed some more time. Okay? Uh, no evening and morning, interestingly, with day seven. Every day ends with, and there was evening and morning, first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, except the seventh day. All we're told is that God rested on the seventh day. And their implication, therefore, is, well, the seventh day is still continuing. God is still resting from his creative work. So why would we, therefore, think all the other six days have to be 24 hours? They would also point out that the word yom uh, for day is used in Genesis 2-4 and clearly does not mean a 24-hour day. For what that says, it's a summation uh, verses. In that day, the Lord God created the heavens and the earth. It uses a singular version of the word yom, but it's referring to everything that God did and what was previously divided up in six days. Why wouldn't God have said, well, in those six days... 
everything he created. Well, he kind of does that in Exodus 20. <laughs> but here he uses the singular form of day, and it's referring to all the activity on the previous six days. So they would say, see, Yom does not have to be a 24-hour day in this context. Now we go back to the structural framework ID. Here's how that works. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we're told, well, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, everybody I'm talking about today agrees with that. <laughs> they, they all would agree and interpret Genesis 1, yeah, God's the creator, no question. Also, the song I played, uh, Indescribable, with Chris Tomlin's arrangement there, they would all agree to everything in that song. The question is, well, how did we arrive at these things? How did we actually get there? Well, in verse 2, it says, And the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. Now, that seems fairly significant. It said the earth was formless and void. So it's interesting then, when we look at these days of Genesis, the other Near Eastern creation counts are often grouped, uh, are separated by three groups of two days each. Similar activities on two days, another similar activity on the next two days, and another similar activity on the last two days. Well, this seems to be broken down into two groups of three days, because look what happens on day one. Well, he creates form. He separates light from darkness. On day two, creates form again. The waters are separated from the waters with the expanse in the middle. Day three adds form again, creating the land out of the sea and creating vegetation. In each of those first three days, God is correcting the formlessness of the earth. On the second three days, sort of three days, he fills the void of each of those same spheres in the same order. So, day four, he creates the sun, moon, and the stars, which is where he separated light from darkness on day one. On day five, he separated, day, day two, he separated the expanse from the waters, and so he puts birds in the expanse and fish in the waters. And on day six, when the land was created, on day three, he now fills the void of the land by creating land creatures. And what they would maintain is that this clear poetic structure would indicate at least the feasibility that Genesis 1 was not meant to be an historical narrative. It is simply telling you that God is the creator and it simply uses a form that was common in the Near East of that time, only they used two groups of three days, not three groups of two days. Whether there's a significance of that difference, we don't really know. All right, theistic evolution. Well, they're saying there's no history whatsoever in Genesis 1. It's not meant or intended to be a narrative of natural history. Genesis 1, in their mind, simply communicates that an all-powerful God created the universe. It does not say how or when he did it. And lastly... Um, they see it primarily as an anti-pagan message to the surrounding cultures of, of the, the promised land. Now, it is, it is interesting, when you look at the specific things God mentions in Genesis 1, you do find corollaries to specific gods in the surrounding cultures. For instance, God creates the sun, moon, and the stars. Well, almost every culture worshipped in some way the sun, the moon, and sometimes the stars as well. Uh, in Egypt, the sun god, Ra, 
very important deity in the Egyptian pantheon. Well, these things are saying, Genesis 1 is simply saying, well, it's not a god. It's something God made. He's the creator. He is above all these things. You think you have powerful gods? Well, the God we worship created all the things that you are worshiping. So there still is a very powerful and unique message to Genesis 1, and the primary intent is to create a separation between the gods of the surrounding uh, tribes and cultures and the God of the Hebrews. So, the anti-pagan message. Uh, Daryl Falk in his book, Coming to Peace uh, with Science in 2004, talking about the Genesis account, he says, the account is an affirmation by the Hebrews that the God they worshipped and served is God alone. Unlike the surrounding nations, the Hebrews neither feared nor worshipped nature, which is what you'll find to be a part of all those other surrounding cultures. So how are you doing? Questions on the biblical theological foundation? Yes, ma'am. Do any of these schools of thought have a timeline for how long Adam and Eve existed before the fall? Oh, that the question is, uh, do any of these have a timeline for how long Adam and Eve existed before the fall? Uh, yeah, that's all guesswork. <laughs> um, we do know, we are told, that Adam lived 930 years but how long he lived prior to the fall or prior to, yeah, prior to the fall, it, there's, there's just no information. Generally, people tend to think that the fall was fairly soon. Um, days, weeks, months, not much more than that. Um, but again, it's, it's guesswork. Yes, sir? Uh, for the recent creation theory um, about pain, suffering, and death, is there something about God giving Adam rain on the animals? Does that mean he didn't? Uh, the question is about no pain, suffering, and death, and about Adam giving, being given rain over the other animals, therefore he didn't, wouldn't eat them. It's not really that connotation. Um, you do have other uh, inserts that, that God has put into Genesis 1 where it says uh, on both, uh, especially I think on day 6, that God gave, and, and when it talks about Adam and Eve, God gave them the plants of the field to eat. So the only thing God says you're allowed to eat <laughs> is plants. It's the only thing that's specifically mentioned. So the implication, again, there would be, well, they apparently weren't eating animals. And if they weren't eating animals, maybe other animals weren't eating animals either. Okay? Does that help? Yeah. Okay. Anybody else before we go on? All right. Now it's going to get deep. Recent creation. The earth and universe are generally within the realm of 6,000 to 30,000 years old. What I've been observing is that more and more are gravitating towards the shorter end of that stick, to 6,000 years. And why is that? Well, um, if we take the history of from Christ and we go back through time to the Old Testament history and so forth and we come back to Genesis 12 where the start of Abraham is. Abraham is generally dated uh, not only by uh, the text and so forth but also by the surrounding cultures, the kind of practices he did, the peoples that were nearby to about 2000 B.C. 
we can march backward in time because Genesis 5 and 11 provide us a unique perspective. Those have genealogies in them. Now, we also always know that the genealogies later on in the Old Testament are pretty loosely put together. When it says, so-and-so begat so-and-so, <laughs> um, that could simply mean not that this individual was the father of this individual, but he could have been the grandfather or great-grandfather. What Scripture often does in those genealogies is simply mention the more significant individual that ought to be known and might skip a few generations. Everybody recognizes that. So when you read the generation, the uh, generations of Jesus in either Luke or Matthew, um, they're, they're skipping people. It, it, it's more uh, lining up with the right numbers and so forth, and that's not a big deal. But in Genesis 5 and 11, those are structured differently. For in each one of those, it tells you that, for instance, with Adam, Adam uh, uh, had many sons and daughters, and he was so many years old when he, when he, gave, when he had Seth, because both Cain and Abel were a little different, so Seth was the third one, at least. Well, at least the third one. It says he had other sons and daughters and lived 930 years, and he died. What you'll see repeatedly in Genesis 5 and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. <laughs> that's very significant there. But the other aspect that's different is they tell you how old each of them was when they gave birth to the next heir, and then that continues with that individual. So there's not as much leeway, most scholars think, to add generations in there. So most, especially the young age or recent, crea recent creation view, will take those as very literal one after the other genealogies. If you add up all the years to that, then you come to, I think, uh, creation started day one was Monday, October 6th, 4004 B.C. <laughs> so if it's 4004 B.C. and we're just in 2013, well, that's about 6,000 years, right? So that's how they basically come to that date. Now, there was some, a period of time where they were fudging a little bit until, well, it could be 10,000 and so forth, or 30,000, uh, but they really walked away from that idea. In their view, the flood of Noah is universal, catastrophic, and it's the source of most of the sedimentary strata we find, and it's what, those, those are the strata we find all the fossils in. And the flood, therefore, becomes an extremely important event scientifically for the young age creationists because this is how they explain where the fossils came from. Without the flood, if the earth is only 6,000 years old, then these, these fossils pose a problem. Okay? They agree that there's been, I, I use the word evolution in quotation marks, loosely used, evolution within the kinds, but not between the kinds. And let me give you a brief example of that. They would say that on day six, God created a population of dog, a dog kind. And when Noah entered the ark, he only had to take two representatives, male and female, of the dog kind. But after the flood, as populations began to grow and to migrate, there was an evolution, if you will, within the kind that would lead to the, uh, the northern wolf, to the Australian uh, 
dingo to the African wild dog to the coyote. Some even think foxes may be a part of the dog kind. So there was a, if you will, a, a sorting out of the genetic variation of those two individuals that were brought on the ark. So that's the idea of a kind. And so there's, there's a sort of variation and even an evolution within the kind, but that dog group is not going to evolve into something like a cat, or it's not going to evolve downward into something like a rat. It's going to stay clearly a dog-like animal. Even today, the domestic dogs can interbreed with the, with the wolves. Um, wolves can interbreed uh, with, with coyotes, don't do it very often, but it is possible. So that's often been a criteria of identifying a kind. Are they capable of interbreeding? Some of you may have seen uh, YouTube or whatever uh, videos of ligers, the offspring of a tiger and a lion. They are able to interbreed. I haven't seen anything about whether they're fertile or not. Can they have offspring of their own? But it does happen, and it does work. So there's a type of microevolution in the recent creation view, but definitely no macroevolution. And this can be an important point to realize that when your kids or whatever might be studying <clears throat> biology in school and they come across the idea of natural selection, don't be afraid of natural selection. Basically, even recent creationists are saying that has happened in nature, particularly since the flood. Natural selection is a real process. Only the creationists would look at natural selection more as a conservative process. It keeps the species functioning, whereas opposed to evolution, sees it also as a creative process, creating new forms and new types, not just of new species, but new types of organisms altogether over long periods of time. So there is that distinction. But natural selection itself is not something to be concerned about. Now, scientifically, uh, the issue that always comes up here is, okay, they may say theologically and biblically the earth is very young, but science seems to say something completely different. Radioactive dating methods are used to date uh, the earth and uh, asteroids and uh, four and a half billion years old for the earth. And astronomers are telling us that the universe has been expanding for 13.7 billion years. So what are, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, the Institute of Creation Research, about 10 years ago, initiated something they called the RATE Project, and it's a, an acronym for radioactive something. <laughs> How they stuck the T and the E in there, I think they just chose some random letters from words and made it the RATE Project. They, they discovered some very, very important things. One of the byproducts of radioactive decay is the element helium. And helium, being a very small gaseous molecule, it's just got two protons in it, okay? Hydrogen, helium, really small. So it diffuses out of rock very readily. It's really tough to trap helium inside rocks. Well, if a radioactive element has been inside a rock for, say, 500 million years, there's an awful lot of time for that helium to diffuse out and just disappear. If that radioactive decay has been going on for 500 million years, you're not expecting to find a whole lot of helium still in the rocks. Well, they investigated uh, locations around the country and sent them to independent dating laboratories, and they found huge amounts of helium 
in these radioactive rocks, in these rocks that had radioactive elements in them, far too much that, that could be true for just for hundreds of millions of years of radioactive decay. Carbon-14 is a unique uh, radioactive element because its half-life is all, just over 5,000 years. And what that means is that if you have a lump, say, of coal, and it's all carbon-14... <laughs> Carbon-14 decays into carbon-12, which is not radioactive. It's a one-step process. It's one and done kind of thing. But if you start out with, say, a pound of coal, in just 5,000 years, half of that carbon-14 would now be regular carbon-12 and non-radioactive. You take another 5,000 years, then that half gets cut in half again. So basically, after you've gone through about 10 half-lives, it's basically gone. It's, it's, you know, there are some radioactive elements, like uranium. Some of its different elements or, or, or isotopes have a half-life of about four and a half billion years. So for what we're concerned about, there's always going to be some uranium there that's radioactive. It's just too slow. But carbon-14 is not. It's going to dissipate in just 50,000 years. It's going to basically be gone. So what the RAID project did is they found coal seams of various parts of the country and sent them again to independent uh, radioactive dating laboratories and essentially had them tested for carbon-14. Now, all these coal seams were definitely over 100 million years old by technical, by standard geology methods. So there should have been no carbon-14 whatsoever. Well, they found still a small residual of carbon-14 in every sample they had tested. Um, So that, again, was very significant to them. Something else is something that's called radio, radio halos. Now, if you have, let's just use this as a, as a radioactive element here. Let's say this is just one atom. Or let's say it's a group of uh, several hundred or a thousand atoms of a radioactive substance. Well, each time this particular element has a decay ele- uh, uh, event, either helium or actually an electron will shoot out a certain distance from the center and actually each element within the radioactive decay process sends its decay products a specific distance from the center. So when you find radioactive elements in certain kinds of rock, you will see concentric rings around it. And each one of those rings represents the decay event from a specific element in that radioactive decay process. So if... um, and there are some elements. What, for instance, you have uranium decays into thorium, and thorium decays into something else, and that decays into something else, that decays into something else. Eventually, you get to lead, which is where it stops. Okay? Um, one of those is plutonium. It's kind of at the, at the uranium end of things. And, and several of the, of the elements of plutonium that are radioactive that decay, their half-life is like three minutes. So it's, it's, it's just gone really fast, <laughs> okay? Well, in the, mo- in the case of most sedimentary strata or even volcanic rock, all that rock takes far more than three minutes to solidify. So if it's taking 100 years, let's say, for this rock to solidify, you'll never see a plutonium halo. Because it's already gone, <laughs> 
it's just not going to be enough time. And there are some rocks where the beginning halo of decay is plutonium. In other words, plutonium is what started out. It was the initial element in that rock, and we see a full plutonium halo. That shouldn't be there. And it's found in granite, granite rock. Granite forms over long periods of time with great heat and great pressure. But somehow after that became granite, this plutonium element was right there, and it decayed in three and a half minutes. Hmm. That would seem to indicate that rock was formed in less than three minutes. Hard to correlate that with great ages of time. And I'm not going to take a lot of time here, but also the dating methods in general, they say, are unreliable. Uh, We've been able to take some volcanic rocks, say from Hawaii, that we know are from a particular specific eruption, happened on this date in 1835 or whatever. And we can take pieces of that rock, send those out to different radioactive dating laboratories, and they will tell you this rock is anywhere from one to three million years old. No, it was formed in 1835. (laughs) It's not even 200 years old. So they're able to say that there are wide discrepancies in what the radioactive dating methods are able to tell you, so they're not reliable. Now the flood. Um, By the way, I'm going to take a moment here uh, to go through this with you. I've got a couple of books I'm going to have just for show and tell. Up here. This is called Coming to Grips with Creation. This is a recent creation edited volume about how to understand Genesis 1. And it's their theological and biblical uh, foundations for that. This is just the one of the two volumes set. It's called Earth's Catastrophic Past Geology, Creation, and the Flood by geologist Andrew Snelling. I was privileged to be with Andrew on both of my hikes into the Grand Canyon, so I've, I've heard his explanations. I was, he was also on the, uh, the river trip I took down the Colorado River for a week, and I uh, got to hear more from him then, just a couple years ago. But you can come look at that. It's about the geology. And then, again, this is just volume one of two of the two volumes that came from the Rate Project about radioactive dating. So you're welcome to come up and take a look at these as well. Excuse me while I tie my shoe. Okay, the flood. As I mentioned, very important element within the recent creation view. Sedimentary rock demonstrates, now we're seeing more and more of this, where even standard geology is recognizing that sedimentary rocks were formed rapidly and catastrophically. The uniformitarian view that these were developed slowly over long periods of time is diminishing, and they're seeing more and more of the sedimentary deposits, as the recent creationists predicted, would show evidence of rapid deposition in a flood-like context. Uh, the, the blowing up, if you will, of Mount St. Helens uh, about 15 years or so ago is a laboratory for many of these young age creationists for the catastrophic origin of coal and the layering of sediment. Um, when Mount St. Helens blew, uh, not only did it destroy so much of uh, the surrounding woodlands that is only now still barely getting started with recovery, um, but it formed a lake called Spirit Lake that was several hundred feet in elevation below where uh, the, the top of the mountain blew. Um, 
and it, and then that lake was was just ended up being covered with the logs of all these fir and spruce trees and all kinds of stuff that were just rolling around and and actually rubbing against each other. The bark was getting scraped off, and the bark was settling to the bottom of Spirit Lake. And with the, what am I doing? <laughs> Well, Josh is going to fix it back there for me. I'm, I'm convinced. Um, no pressure, Josh. Um, and after just a couple of years, that those layers of bark that accumulated on the bottom of Spirit Lake were already beginning the process of forming into coal. So the idea that coal requires hundreds of millions of years to be able to form and solidify, well, that's simply not the case. It can happen very quickly. Um, also, that what happened is there, there was Spirit Lake eventually um, uh, broke through a dam-like context, and it kind of drained partially. And what it drained through was these layers of volcanic ash that had settled, and it was already being hardened to a certain degree. Well, this initial flood actually cut a Grand Canyon-esque canyon out of this volcanic ash that, that also recognized that the ash had small little layers in it, indicating that the small layers were formed instantaneously. You don't need different layers forming over millions of years, one on top of the other, to get a layering effect. It can happen very, very quickly in just a few days' time. There is a fossil progression uh, from marine at the very bottom, which would be of the fossil record, which would be the earliest flood deposits, which you'd expect to be marine organisms. As you go up through the, 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 the progression of the fossil record, you find eventually some land animals and more and more land animals as you go up. Well, the floodwaters progressively came inland. So they say that even that progression of fossils is an evidence for the global nature of the flood. And evolution within kinds. I've already mentioned the, the, the dog kind example and uh, forgot that I put this in there, so we, we can go by that. <laughs> uh, kinds created were created with necessary genetic variations, what they say now. And, and God knew the flood was going to come. So all the various kinds that were created, they were granted a certain amount of genetic variation that they didn't need in the pre-flood world. But within 1,500 years when the flood came and all these new environments were opened up, they would need a certain amount of genetic variation to adapt to these different new environments. So that was, again, something God would do in anticipation of the flood, which he knew was going to come. Progressive creation. Well, as you might expect... um, The universe and Earth are billions of years old. They they accept the 4.5 billion year old Earth and the 13.7 billion year old universe. But they do say God has directly intervened throughout that 13.7 billion years to create things in stages as he he chose. Uh, The flood uh, may have been just a local flood in the Mesopotamian area. Uh, or could have, if it was worldwide, it was a very tranquil flood and has left no geological marks whatsoever. You're not going to be able to detect it. And they also, therefore, accept microevolution, but they reject macroevolution. So let me fill this out a little bit. 
meteor, meteors that are asteroids that come from the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter do occasionally fall to the Earth. And whenever those have been dated, they consistently date at 4.5 billion years old. So those would date to the time when our solar system was initially forming. So that's where the date for 4.5 billion years for the Earth comes from, is from dating asteroids that would have been formed around the same time our whole solar system was being formed. The oldest rock that we've dated on Earth by standard geology is 3.8 billion years old, but the 4.5 comes from the asteroids. Universe is 13.7 billion years old in their estimation. It's based on the continuing expansion of the universe after the Big Bang. And one of the reasons that most astronomers are convinced the universe is expanding is because the light that comes to us from the vast majority of stars and the, the almost total majority of universe, I mean, of galaxies that we can see, the light is shifted slightly to, into the red. And what that means is if something, if something is moving away from you, the light will be shifted a little bit to the red. If it's coming closer to you, the light will be shifted a little bit into the blue of the light spectrum. It's like um, you're standing still and a train comes by. As the train's approaching, the noise gets louder and louder and the pitch changes. As it's coming closer, it goes up and up and up and up and as it passes you, not only does it go down in volume, but the pitch starts to decrease again. Well, that's the same effect. It's called the Doppler effect. And so when light is coming to you, it's going to shift to the blue. And when it's going away from you, it's shifted to the red. Well, almost everything we see in a nighttime sky and in the universe as we observe it is shifted slightly to the red. Everything is moving farther away. Um, volcanic layers are interspersed with the sedimentary rock. That's how you're able to date fossils and so forth. Uh, and they're saying it consistently that, that what you find is that the older rocks are at the bottom. If you move up through a sequence, rocks get younger and younger and younger and younger, even when you're using the same radioactive dating method. Now, you may disagree with the actual age it gives, but that notion of a progression from older at the bottom, younger at the top, is seen universally around the world. So that to them is evidence for this view. Um, when it comes to the flood, they will argue the flood was local for a couple of reasons. Um, humans, first of all, had only spread through what's called the Fertile Crescent by that time. The specific intention of the flood was to wipe out humanity. It, what the purpose was not to necessarily to wipe out all of living creatures. And also, the, the word that is often translated <laughs> earth can also be translated simply as the word land. And so in most of our translations, when we're reading in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8, it often uses the word English word earth. Well, it can also just simply say Land. And what, what they maintain is that that's how it ought to be translated into land, and it just means the promised land area, the Mesopotamian area, the Fertile Crescent area. That's, the, that's where the flood was. And we do have sedimentary layers in Mesopotamia around the Tigris and Euphrates of a vast, nasty, catastrophic flood around that time of about three, 4,000 B.C. Okay. Um, some of the rivers of Eden, they say, they have located. Uh, Tigris and Euphrates is mentioned in Eden. Uh, 
there's Gihon is mentioned, and there's another uh, river, and they say that two of these rivers no longer exist, but, but the waterway carved underneath is still visible. You can still find it geologically. So they do say there were four rivers in this area at one time. Um, the slow progression of continental drift. Um, these continents today are moving away from each other at about two centimeters a year. We don't really feel them moving very much. <laughs> now, if you simply add that up, and, you, and we can see in the ocean, these, like in the Atlantic, there's a mid-oceanic Atlantic ridge that comes right down the center, and you, what's coming up is lava is coming up, and it's pushing these plates farther apart, about two centimeters a year. If you just take that rate and go back in time, well, you're coming up with hundreds of millions of years for the time these continents have been drifting apart. And again, they would say that makes sense within our progressive or old creation view, but does not make sense within a young earth, young earth view. And the other thing you can do is that the volcanic rock that comes up, um, those rocks that you date that are farthest away from the ridge where the lava is coming up new are the oldest. As you come closer and closer to the ridge where the, where the lava is coming up, the rocks keep getting younger as you get closer to the ridge. So, no macroevolution. They would say the lack of fossil intermediates indicates that. The Cambrian explosion of the animal phyla, only 10 million years, is impossible by evolution. And uh, this book uh, just came out last month, Darwin's Doubt by Stephen Meyer, an intelligent design Discovery Institute book. And uh, this is all about the Cambrian explosion, both geologically, informationally, bi uh, biologically, and developmentally, how body plans come about. Very good book that I highly recommend. Although Blake Holmes has asked me to make sure I read it first and then tell him whether he thinks he'll understand it or not. <laughs> uh, my answer is going to be parts of it, I think. We'll be just fine. Um, we've, they do see that there's a need for new genetic information. That's one of the things addressed in Darwin's Doubt, that when all these new animals, types, and body plans appear in the Cambrian, that requires an influx of new genetic information. And a natural process has no way of generating that much new information in that short of a period of time. Natural processes can't do that. Now, theistic evolution. When I finish this, we'll, we'll, take, another break. we'll take our break. <clears throat> um, again, Earth and universe are billions of years old. And some of them actually say God had to have used evolution as his means to create. The reason they say that is they say God is an all-sovereign, all-powerful God. And particularly talking about the progressive creation view, but also uh, hinting at the young age or the recent creation view. They say that God created everything that was needed in that particle that exploded in the Big Bang. And God never had to intervene again because he is so powerful, so sovereign, that it simply unfolded on its own. Now that would require some, some major planning, <laughs> okay? I would admit. And they say, for God to have to progressively intervene and create new stuff here, there, whether it's over six days or whether it's over billions of years, well, that makes God into more of a creature than a creator. 
he's having to continually fix what he's made. He didn't get it right the first time, and he's got to keep adding stuff. So they say that God's, God acts more creaturely than he does as a creator, if that's the case. God has no direct intervention in what they would call natural history. Um, natural history unfolds naturally. What they would refer to as salvation history, which would include every miracle in the scriptures, Yes, God does directly intervene there in salvation history, but he doesn't intervene in natural history. And the flood for them is almost inconsequential. Uh, it could be local, if the worldwide is tranquil, but they don't particularly worry about the flood that much. It could just be a story. Other near ancient Near Eastern uh, cultures also all had flood stories, much of them far more bizarre <laughs> than the one in Genesis. And they would accept both micro and macro evolution. So the whole gamut. In other words, even when evolutionists define evolution as a process that is without plan and without purpose, most theistic evolutionists agree with that. It, God worked everything in he needed at the Big Bang. It simply unfolded naturally. So God is ne God's not causing mutations to happen along the way, or he's not causing natural selection work out this way instead of that way. It just unfolds naturally. God is not planning anything within the context of how things unfold. One uh, theistic evolution has gone so far as to say that even the evolution of human beings... As our, in our current form was not planned by God. A fully uh, cognitive and intel intellectual uh, being could have been a clam. didn't have to be us in our form. God is all-powerful, totally sovereign. It's an immense demonstration of his power to gift his creation from the initial Big Bang to the present to bring about all the creatures with no further interference. To interfere is to act like a creature. Uh, Darwinian evolution is the unifying paradigm of all life sciences. If you take evolution out, they say, you can't do biology anymore. You can't do medicine anymore. We're, we're left without a foundation. Fossils, they say, document the progressive development of life from simpler forms to more complex over time. Fossil record gives us everything we need. Evolution is a fact. And every theistic evolution I've ever talked to would state it quite just that plainly. This is what's true. And there is an organization now called the BioLogos Foundation uh, that has a website, biologos.com. And there they post uh, regular articles from both the theological and scientific perspective, perspective demonstrating that evolution, first of all, is true. And secondly, that, that's what Scripture teaches us too. There, there's no difference between the two. There's no conflict between the two. And part of their mission is to communicate to the church today in America to get over your resistance to evolution. We've got to stop resisting evolution because, first of all, it's true. And it's damaging our witness. And we just got to get on with it. And they're trying to communicate particularly to pastors to get them to back away from any resistance to evolution. So that's the BioLogos Foundation. 
Okay, questions? Well, she's asking about uh, Genesis 1 with the theistic evolutionists when uh, Scripture says that God created man in his image and in his likeness. Um, And how does that fit in with the Big Bang? Well, again, what they would be maintaining is that, as as, uh, I think one of the earlier slides, Van Til, what he said is that God has gifted the creation with all of the self organizational and transformational abilities to bring about what we see today. So they can't explain to you what that means or how that actually works, but that's what they maintained to allow them to say evolution is true. But God has ordained it and God has used it. So, you know, even our own perspective on uh, generally about what does it mean to be made in God's image uh, does, does not reflect our physical appearance. It's more our theological, our emotional, our intellectual capabilities that are in the image of God. The reason we have emotions is because God has emotions. <laughs> the reason we think is because God thinks. The reason we create is because God creates. The main connection you can make to that is that this particular form... Uh, that we have is specifically able to express that image of God. And so they would probably make the same thing, but God simply planned it out 14 billion years ago and just let it unfold on its own. Yes, ma'am? Well, as you might imagine, oh, the question was uh, if they found carbon-14 in very old uh, um, uh, layers, why has not, not this proven millions of years? Well, th- there's a great discussion about that. And they have invited comments from standard geologists and uh, people from, who are also Christians who hold to the old earth. What they say is that the level of carbon-14 you have found and demonstrated is so low that it's essentially equal to just a background level that you would get no matter what you put in there. And so the contention is between these different views is, is it more than background or is it just background? And that gets into a rather nitpicky scientific discussion that concerning radioactive dating methods, I I don't even know how to deal with it. Uh, I'm a biologist by training, and so when they start getting the details of radioactive dating, you say, okay, I get the generalities, but that's about it. Yes? How do you progressive creationists deal with the fact that Noah had all kinds of, was told to bring all kinds of animals on? There wasn't a global. <clears throat> oh, well, if it, oh, the question is uh, with progressive creationists, um, how do they deal with the fact that Noah was told to take all kinds of animals for a local flood? Well, if you're putting it in the context of speaking of just the land, the, the earth does not mean the whole earth. It just means the land, if you will, of Canaan or the Fertile Crescent, whatever. Well, it's just the animals that were contained in that area. So in their model, then, it's a lot easier to fit all those animals on the ark. Um, the, young age, the recent creationists um, do have to do some calculating because if you're taking two of every kind of land animal 
That's still a lot of critters. Some have estimated as many as 40,000 individuals. Um, one of your kids eventually is going to ask, were there any dinosaurs on the ark? <laughs> How you answer that question depends on whether you're a recent creationist, a progressive creationist, or a theistic evolutionist. If you're a progressive creationist, you say, well, dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago, and you just took animals from the local area. So no, there were no dinosaurs on the ark. But if you're a recent creationist, and God said, take two of every kind of every animal on the earth, well, dinosaurs were still alive. And that's what they're, when, so there were, they didn't have to take dinosaurs. Uh, I'm sure they were new juveniles, not full-grown. Um, <laughs> One, one, one Diplodocus is going to do it for you. It's going to... Nobody else gets on after that. <laughs> um, but for the progressive creation, again, again yeah, it just... They, the context of how they interpret the flood says it's just this local area. So whatever creatures you can find around uh, the Fertile Crescent today, those were the only ones that were needed to take on the air to repopulate that area, not the entire world. Yes? many millions of people in the United States that don't believe in evolution. When people say stuff like that, they're talking about that everything was created from one cell. Uh-huh. Okay. Because we, you've said natural selection, that's uh, obvious and provable. Mm-hmm. Uh, microevolution, breeding and the within the kinds, kinds yeah kinds. Mm-hmm. and so the only thing when they're saying something like that the only thing the debate is all about did, uh, did God create life when they're saying that at evolution or did it just spontaneously start mm-hmm. is that basically well for some yeah that's the dividing line um, the question was about how we define in the word evolution and what we're really talking about um most of those who would call themselves theistic evolutionists would say that, again, God just created once. And he created that particle that explodes to, to, bring, to, to unfold to the universe, eventually to our solar system, eventually to our planet, and eventually to life here. And it all happened naturally without divine interference. Um, there are varieties of theistic evolutionists, though, who will say that God did have to create the first life on Earth. And that life is not going to originate from the non-living on its own. But again, that's the only place where they will allow for some intervention. Others might go a little further and say that, well, humans did not evolve from an ape-like ancestor, and humans were created directly. Genesis 2, particularly, gives you a few details, at least, as to how God did that. So, out of the dust of the ground, and for Eve, well, he took something out of, out of Adam's side, and he fashioned a woman. Again, you know, Adam was just made. Eve was fashioned. <laughs> <laughs> just, just saying. <laughs> read it, read it yourself. So, um, again, there can be different levels of how much evolution, theistic evolutionists and progressive creationists are willing to accept. But with the recent creation view especially, almost everybody in that camp is going to say, 
No, the only thing that, that's evolved are things that evolved within the kinds, yeah. and nothing outside of that. Yeah. If you hold to a worldwide flood, then all the animals are wiped out except what was contained on the ark, right. two of each kind. Has enough time passed since that time, biologically and logically, for two of each kind to account for just by procreating normally? Mm-hmm. to account for the numbers of animal populations and varieties that we have today. So the question is, if we do have a worldwide flood, then the only animals uh, that are able to repopulate the entire Earth are those that were taken on the ark. Do we have enough time to get to the large populations that we have today? Um, most of God's creatures are quite prolific. Uh, they, even human beings, they've done the calculations and said if we just had Noah's three sons and their three wives to repopulate the earth, it, it, it's a simple matter. You can get to these numbers, you can get to 7 billion people within four to 500 years without any problem. And if you, can, if you can account for that, then looking at almost all the other animal species and their actual numbers, at least before man started crowding most of them out... <laughs> um, yeah, they would say, we can do the calculation and say there's sufficient time to populate. What is a bit of a challenge is realizing that if, the, if you've got this evolution within the kinds occurring after the flood, then all the different dogs have appeared in the time frame after the flood. All of the different woodpeckers, are pro- the woodpeckers are probably one kind. Well, all the different species of woodpeckers have come about in the 4,500 years since the flood. That's where they start running into a little bit of a problem, where people have made accusations to say, now you're expecting, first of all, you say there's no evolution, but now you're expecting really rapid and significant evolutionary change with only just a few thousand years. That seems to be asking a lot of these populations to radiate that quickly within just a little over 4,000 years. So that's what I mentioned earlier that um, probably kind of went over your heads at the moment, but the significance of what I said, that all the different kinds were created initially with all the variation they were going to need to radiate into all the different forms since the flood. Because you cannot have enough time for mutations to enter into and, and be the cause of all of that. For that, definitely, there isn't enough time. God would have to specifically cause the mutations for that to happen. That's certainly a possibility, but the time frame doesn't seem to be that that big a deal for them. One more, and then we'll take a break. Uh, the flood talks and states in the Bible about the flood happened because the earth Okay, the question is about uh, the, the sea creatures in the context of a worldwide flood, and also where did all the water go that covered the earth for, by the way, the flood lasted 371 days. <laughs> that's, that's how long Noah and his family were in the ark with all those animals. Um, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. The... Uh, um, Basically, the, 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 the issue with the marine creatures 
is that prior to the flood, there would be both freshwater-adapted species and saltwater-adapted species. And you're going to have an intermingling of all of that in the context of the flood. So you'd have to have species of freshwater that had enough genetic variability that they could handle the salt in the water, and the saltwater species had enough variation that they could handle a little bit of a lowering of the density of the salt with concentration. Um, that's usually considered the big problem. Um, and we do see uh, examples where freshwater, saltwater, that they can inhabit the, the other type for a limited period of time, but not usually able to breed there. Um, but in terms of, for the most part, those creatures just survived the flood, and, and there was no um, extinction event necessary within the context of those organisms. Some of them would have gone extinct probably because of the fact they couldn't handle the mixing of the salt and the fresh. Um, but in terms of where the water went, the current model that's being used by the recent creationists is called um, runaway continental drift. I mentioned two centimeters per year right now. Well, they estimate that just before the flood, there was just one continent, Pangaea. And the initial event of the flood was the beginning of the separation of that one continent and the continents we see today. So they began the process of spreading apart and moving, and that was the initial event of the flood. And if that was happening at a very rapid pace, very catastrophically in the beginning, then what we have, say, in the mid-Atlantic, where lava comes up very slowly, well, then it would come up really fast. And basalt, when it hardens, is not very dense. So it would actually push up the waters. It would, it would push up the, from the depths and, and start pushing the ocean water out over the land surface. The other thing that would have happened, they say, is that with all that lava coming up, it would have created these immense... Uh, walls of steam that would be coming up from those locations and spreading out within the atmosphere and that was the source of rain for 40 days and 40 nights. So you literally did have a deluge where the fountains of the great deep that say burst open so the ocean was actually spilling out over the land and then you have um, the 40 days and 40 nights coming from the, from the top adding immense amounts of water again within those 40 days. Now, the issue about where that water went is the idea that when you see mountain ranges today, like the Rocky Mountains, the Andes, the Himalayas, the Alps, these are all, even standard geologists call these young mountain ranges. Well, those have all formed as a result of this runaway continental drift of the continents, of the plates. So that the Himalayas, we know, have come about from India crashing into South Asia, and that's created the Himalayas. And they would say that's exactly what happened within the first few years after the flood. These are all very, very recent mountain ranges, so the same thing for the Rockies and the Andes and the Alps and any other recent mountain range. Those are the result of these plates really crashing into each other, um, literally. Now we say two centimeters per, per year. What they estimate is that the initial pace of the... Uh, the tectonic plates drifting was about one mile per hour. Let's uh, try to get ourselves oriented again. Um, I do have a few other books up here uh, that I can mention while I'm thinking of it.
Uh, I've got two books here that come from a uh, progressive creationist view. One of them is A Biblical Case for Old Earth uh, by David Snoke, who's from the University of Pennsylvania. And then this one is by Hugh Ross called The Genesis Question. And it's his, again, his theological uh, defense of the old earth or the progressive creation position. Hugh Ross is what is called a day-age theorist. So each of those days is historical, but it covers a long period of time, not just a 24-hour day. And then I have one book representing the the theistic evolution view. This is by Daryl Falk, Coming to Peace with Science. And when, he says, and when he says coming to peace with science, that means accepting evolution completely and finding a way theologically to make that fit for you. So, uh, bridging the world between faith and biology. And there's a, a foreword by Francis Collins. That name might be familiar to you. Uh, for about 10 years, he was the director of the Human Genome Project. He is an evangelical Christian. And uh, he's currently serving by President Obama's appointment as the, the head of National Institutes of Health, which is the major biology, biology research organization in the world, not just the United States. Um, and he's been appointed as head of that. So those are the books. Okay, I got 50 minutes. All right, strengths and weaknesses. Um, Again, remember, strengths come from those who hold that view. Weaknesses come from those who don't hold that view. Recent creation strengths. Well, as they will freely tell you, it's the most common reading of the text, not only today, but throughout church history. They are able to explain the fossil anomalies. By that, I mean the gaps between the major forms. They would say there are gaps between the major types of organisms because those intermediates never existed. They were never created in the first place. They do have what they would claim is a very testable flood model. That idea of the runaway subduction and the, the steam rising up and the 40 days and 40 nights of rain and, and all that, that cast, catastrophism is testable. And we can look into the, the rock record to see, do we see sufficient evidence of catastrophe all throughout the fossil record? And that's primarily what they use their trips in the Grand Canyon to show that, um, yeah, we see plenty of evidence of catastrophes, especially in the Grand Canyon. And again, for them, they provides the clear understanding for pain, suffering, and death entering creation after the fall, and that it's our fault. God didn't create it in the first place. Some other strengths. Uh, as I've mentioned uh, periodically here, geology has shifted from a uniformitarian interpretive scheme to a more catastrophic scheme for the origin of sedimentary rocks. And also, the RATE project tackled the biggest problem, the radioactive dating methods, and achieved some impressive results, as I've already shared with you. So I'm not going to go through that again. But some of the weaknesses. What do others who don't hold this view, what are some of their biggest complaints here? Well, this one's kind of, but this statement's been made not just by those outside the view, but those within the creationist view. They got an awful lot of work to do because all of the geology and almost all of the biology is done currently within the context of an evolutionary, very, very ancient earth context. And that requires, if we're going to understand all these things within this 
recent context, there's a lot of reinterpretation to be done. And there's an awful lot of work to be done. If you attend one of their conferences, especially if it's mainly for high school students, whatever, they will always make a plea. If you have any interest in science, please think about and pray about God leading you to pursue a graduate degree in the sciences. We need your help. There's a comparative handful. In some ways, one of the criticisms, interestingly, has been sometimes they make science the measure of truth. They would say initially that our view comes from our understanding of Scripture first. And there are some young age or recent creationists who will go so far as to say that even if all of the scientific evidence was in favor of an ancient old earth, I would still be a recent creationist because that's what the Scripture says. So they're that tied down to what the scripture says. But in certain issues and problems, they tend to want to focus on the processes, the scientific processes. As an example, um, I've already talked a little bit about the ark and uh, some of the issues about animals and so forth, probably 40,000, and God brought the animals to Noah. Uh, He didn't have to go looking for them worldwide. Um, I'd have been grateful for that myself. Um, But the question has always been, okay, these animals were on the ark with Noah and his family with eight people for 371 days. Animals eat. And what they eat comes out. You got to feed them. You got to clean up. So what one guy did, who went by the pseudonym uh, John Woodmerapi, did this study about 15, 20 years ago, where he measured out the dimension of the ark. He put in a couple of stairs, so he'd go up and down stairs, got himself a wheelbarrow, pitchfork, and shovel, the things he would use to do all that activity, and went about the work of what could one man accomplish in one day. I was told it's the connection here that gets goofy, but so I'll wiggle it and see. Um, what could one man accomplish in one day and if you multiply that by eight could they get it done well here you're depending upon process and you're scientifically evaluating could this have happened naturalistically (laughs) okay but when I read Genesis 8 verse 1 the last half of that verse says and God remembered Noah and the animals now, it's not like God was off doing something else. Oh, Noah, man, how are you guys doing? You know, are you okay? <laughs> well, no, it's not that he forgot and suddenly remembered. That phraseology in the Hebrew means God was constantly in their care. They were in his care. And he was involved with them the entire time. Now, to me, that gives the open, the open door to the possibility that there was supernatural intervention. Personally, I think most of those animals slept through the whole thing. I think Noah would have been glad if the rabbits and the rats and the mice slept through the whole thing. Because there would have been a whole lot more than two that got off at the end than, than what he brought on. So, <laughs> man, rabbits everywhere. Um, so, yeah, 
why do we have to think naturalistically and, and get a process to explain it when the scriptures themselves give us a way to understand and explain it through his miraculous intervention? So again, sometimes they actually lean too far into looking for a natural process to explain what happened in the context of the flood and recent creation. For some, it becomes a test of orthodoxy. I've actually heard a young age creationist being interviewed on the radio here in Dallas. And in the context of the interview, he ended up making the direct statement that if you're a Christian, if you say you're a Christian and you fully accept evolution, then I have doubts as to whether you're actually a Christian. Now, he didn't come right out and say he's not and he can't be, but he certainly left it open that that's a big question that needs to be answered. So again, sometimes what they say, you're not really a good Christian, you're not really a biblical Christian unless you accept this particular view. Um, One of the problems is very interesting in a scientific sense, and that is that all the organisms that are buried and fossilized in the fossil record, if the fossil record is due to the flood of Noah, then all those animals in the fossil record in those sedimentary strata were all alive on the earth just before the flood happened. So you have to then realize that all of these fossils were from creatures that existed on the earth at one time. I I recently heard a young age creationist uh, say in a a conference context in a church, uh, uh, First Baptist downtown, um, that their estimates were, are at minimum that there was twice the amount of what they call biomass, the amount of living material, twice as much on the earth before the flood as there is now. And they said at minimum there was twice as much. All right. Oh, maybe, maybe that's it. <laughs> I was warned that could be it too. Um, so you've got a number of competing ideas here that, that, are, that are difficult to explain. Let me give you just one example. There's a, a formation in Africa that, that you can find almost throughout the continent called the Karoo Supergroup. And this uh, group of fossils, this group of sedimentary layers, there's several layers within the Karoo Supergroup, and it contains mostly reptiles. And there are different sized reptiles in this formation. And again, you find them all throughout Africa. And you can sample in different parts of the continent and get an idea of the overall density of these reptilian fossils within this entire formation. And if you estimate, and some have done this, that the average size of those reptilian fossils is about the size of a skunk. Okay, some are a lot smaller, some are a lot bigger, but the average size is about that of a skunk. Well, if you then multiply your estimates of density in these various places and you, and you, and you estimate how many of these reptiles are in the entire Karoo supergroup, essentially, you'd have one skunk for about every four square feet. So two feet by two feet skunk, two feet by two feet skunk, two feet by two feet skunk, two feet by two feet skunk. That's an awful lot of critters. (laughs) All just in Africa, and there are fossilized remains below that and fossilized remains above that that would have to add to that number. So what many people complain is that, well, there's just not enough room on the planet for all these fossils to have been alive just before the flood. 
Now, this runaway continental drift, weaknesses. Um, if these continental drift, if these continental plates, the tectonic plates, are moving, well, that movement creates friction on the rocks they're moving over, the rocks in the mantle, the rocks in the crust. And two centimeters per year is not a lot of movement, not a lot of friction. But one mile per hour? Suddenly you've added exponentially to the amount of friction and the amount of heat. And sometimes, and by some of their own calculations, the crust of the earth would have melted by this runaway subduction. Another similar issue comes about with this accelerated radioactive decay. What they've been able to say is that, yeah, in these rocks, we've also been able to demonstrate by looking at all these radioactive trackways that if this rock was 100 million years old and that's how it's dated, then we find within the rock evidence of 100 million years of decay by measuring these tracks. So the way that's explained is that the radioactive decay was accelerated both during the creation week when land was formed and during the flood. Okay, I, I was standing with Andrew Snelling at a, at a, a site along the um, uh, Colorado River in the Grand Canyon a couple years ago, and we were at a site where he was talking directly about this accelerated radioactive decay. And so after you, I said, well, well, Lander, um, what caused the accelerated radioactive decay? How did that happen? He said, well, the nuclear forces that, the strong and weak nuclear force that hold the nucleus of the atom together, those two forces were weakened. Okay. Well, how did that happen? I mean, where, where did that come from? And I asked a couple of questions like that in a row, and finally he just said, well, right, God did it. Okay. So we're, we're, we're invoking a miracle here where the scripture itself does not necessarily dictate a miracle occur, but in order to have accelerated radioactive decay, you've got to have God start some kind of process for what reason we, we can only really guess at at this time. But the other thing that happens is that Every, every event of radioactive decay also generates heat. So when, you, when you either an alpha or a beta particle, when those get ejected out, heat results. Well, if you have accelerated radioactive decay, so that you're having 100, 200, 300, 500 million years worth of decay happen over a year's time, then you're generating an awful lot of heat. And by their own estimates, again, that is sufficient heat to melt the crust of the earth. So what they're also looking for now is a method that can, in an earth-wide context, cause a cooling to happen. But again, the only reason they have to look for that is because by their own calculations, there's all this heat to dissipate. We're still here. Scriptures are correct. So somehow God cooled the earth, and we're looking for a way that could have been done. Again, relying on natural process all of a sudden rather than the miraculous. Um, also, in all of our bodies, 
there is uh, there's a there's a radioactive element of sulfur called sulfur 35. Phosphorus has a radioactive isotope phosphorus 32. Uh, we all have a little bit of carbon 14 in our bodies, which is radioactive. Um, and basically, all those processes are so slow and those elements are so in the minority in our bodies that it's not really causing any real harm. We do have radioactive decay that happens in our bodies, but it's really insignificant. But now you've speeded it up. And one of the things I did ask Andrew, again, on the shore of the Colorado River there, well, well how, how accelerated was the decay? His answer was... 10 to the 6th. That's a billion times faster. A billion times more decay. Wow. Or a million. A million times faster decay. So what that would mean then is all the radioactive elements that were in the bodies of Noah and his family and all the animals and in the wood of the ark, in the straw, in everything that was there that all contains a very low level of radioactivity, all that stuff's going to decay like that well that creates a few problems (laughs) it creates a few health problems and again you're having to bring in a situation that that maybe God's having to intervene here again to preserve us from this radioactive decay also Psalm 104 is a creation psalm and you'll find different aspects that relate to all six days of the creation in Psalm 104. And I think it's in the, the, I forget what the number of the verses is, but fairly early, about halfway through, it talks about God providing the prey for the lions when they come out at night. Did lions need prey at creation before the fall? Uh, some of the people that were on that raft trip with me were from various uh, seminaries, Bible colleges, some of them Old Testament teachers and scholars, and one of them was a scholar of 104. Uh, well, that's one of the things he studied primarily in getting his doctoral dissertation was Psalm 104, and one of his big questions was, look, I'm telling you, this is a creation psalm. And if it says here that God sends the prey, he brings the prey to the lions, well, they were carnivores prior to the fall at the time of creation. That's what it says. So, Again, these, again, these are complaints from those outside the system of young age creation. Progressive creation strengths. Well, they'll tell you we accept most of the data of science, both the evolutionary transitions, but the evolutionary transitions and the mechanisms are what we reject. But the aging of everything, the dates of things, we accept. They do take, for the most part, Genesis 1 historically, although the days mean something other than 24-hour periods. They are able to also explain the gaps in the fossil record because God creates progressively. There are no transitional forms between amphibians and reptiles, no transitional forms between reptiles and mammals. And as I said, they have no quarrel with standard geology. Some of the weaknesses. Well, you got this pain, suffering, and death thing prior to the fall. And what some will point out is that this really, this isn't talking about all of creation. Their contention is that this is only talking about human beings. So when Paul talks about this in Romans 5, where he says, through one man all sinned, and therefore death entered entered the, the world, the death he's talking about is the death of human beings. 
And when you see Genesis 5, as I mentioned earlier, and the continual phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died, that's why that's there. God is emphasizing that death was in the creation, and it wasn't supposed to be there from the start. So yeah, in those early genealogies, he died, he died, he died. That's on us. Also, what what has been pointed out, um, and I had the privilege of being a moderator for, for a couple of uh, meetings between uh, recent creationists and old age creationists or progressive creationists, both uh, theologians and scientists. Uh, they were held here in the area, and it was by invitation only. It was a small group. There were no recordings. There were no proceedings. There, <laughs> uh, and, and, I, and I can't tell you who was there. We were all sworn to secrecy. But one of the things that came up was I, I, brought, I asked the question of, as I was moderating some of the young age creationist folks, and I said, well, but I'm kind of curious. What do you say about in Genesis 3 where the, the, the effect of the curse on Eve is being discussed? And what God says to Eve is, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. That seems to in, imply there already was pain. Oh, yeah, yeah, we, we admit that. Sure, there was some kind of pain because you can't, mul- mul- if, if you multiply zero by anything, it's still zero. So, yeah, there was some level of discomfort or pain prior to the fall that, that was involved in childbirth, and, and God was going to multiply it. So, okay. Well, that creates a bit of a category problem because if you say there was some level of pain or at least discomfort, then what threshold of pain, therefore, is suffering? And what is just there to help warn you, I just stuck my finger into a, into a flame. <laughs> uh, we need those kinds of uh, feedbacks, all right? But what is suffering and what is just pain to inform you uh, of something? So, again, there's no information from the Scripture to help us decide what's just pain and what's actually pain and suffering. Um, there are discrepancies between the days of Genesis and the order of how the, evolu- uh, the universe is supposed to evolve. What I mean by that, if you're holding to a day-age theory and the, the days are historical and God's uh, describing his major activity for the day, on day three is when God creates the plants and he mentions the flowers and he mentions the fruit trees and they all pr- reproduce fruit after their own kind. So even the plants are created according to kinds. Um, and by the way, the, the, if there were fruit on the trees, which God clearly says, there's a slight appearance of age, isn't there? If you see fruit on a tree today, you assume that that piece of fruit grew over time. God creates an appearance of age even by saying that there was fruit on the trees. Um, But in this context, um, creatures, especially on land, are not created till day six. What affects pollination in most of our plants and flowers today? Insects and birds. They weren't created till day six. But you've got all these plants on day three, and if each of the days, at least at this point, is a couple hundred million years, well, all these plants are being fertilized some other way. That, that, that seems out of order. Also, in this day-age theory, the first life that's described appears on the land, which is the plants. In the evolutionary sequence, life 
evolves in the water first and stays in the water for quite a long period of time before land animals and land plants seem to be found. So again, there are some things that are out of order. Um, the day-age theorists tend not to talk much about the created kinds. They're not too worried about that distinction. The recent creationists do, and they can put limits on how much evolution for these folks, for the progressive creation, trying to define, well, what's the limit between, what's the stopping line between microevolution and macroevolution? I really haven't seen in any of their writings or discussions any even attempt to define what that limit might or might not be. The ISC evolution strengths, well, evolution is widely accepted in the scientific world, so we have few conflicts. They acknowledge God's role in all the universe through creating the natural laws by which things unfold. And evolution, as I said earlier, is the great unifying paradigm of the life sciences. Weaknesses, well, you got the same issue, pain, suffering, and death before the fall of Adam. Uh, for some, there's a problem of even an historical Adam and Eve. Uh, <clears throat> last year, I think even about this time, or, or a little bit uh, some, somewhere in the fall, Christianity Today uh, hosted a bit of a discussion about this very e- issue of a historical Adam and Eve. Because now some theistic evolutionists are saying that what the genetic scientific evidence is telling us is that the human species can only go back to a population of no less than a thousand individuals. The genetic variability that's now in the human population, even if you go back to saying it started a hundred thousand years ago in their estimates, that you would still need an original population of about 10,000 or, or at the very least 1,000 individuals to, to, gain, to, gain, to see the level of genetic variation we have today. Therefore, they say, there was no two original individuals to start the human species. There is no literal or historical Adam and Eve. And God didn't just pick two individuals out of that thousand and give them a soul because, well, well then they're interbreeding with these others. And that's just kind of goofy. So, yeah, there, there was no historical Adam and Eve. And then there are others who are saying, no, scripturally, you, we can't go there with you. Uh, and there are some scientific ways to get around this, this evidence, which I won't take time to talk about now. Um, but there is a book called Science and Human Origins that was put out by Discovery Institute Press just right around this time last year that discusses this problem from the, pot, from the genetic standpoint in the, in the fifth chapter, last chapter, by Ann Gager. And there's also a, a couple of good articles about the human fossil record and how that doesn't fit what the evolutionists expected either. Science and Human Origins, um, Discovery Institute Press. Um, if you're holding to this view that evolution is, is actually true, well, then the origin of life, the data we found that's for a problem for that, uh, the origin of all the animal phyla so suddenly in the Cambrian period is now a problem uh, for your particular view. Um, Basically, when you talk about the origin of life today, there's maybe a a dozen, two dozen laboratories around the world that are still working on origin of life questions. 
And the problem is that they all have their own particular unique way of solving all the different problems for this. But all the others will be able to give you a list this long why that particular view won't work. They're really at almost a standstill in the origin of life. How do we get from non-living molecules to a living reproducing cell? We really don't have any idea how that could happen today. So that's still a huge, huge problem. But an interesting issue, though, for me is that scientifically, this view is indistinguishable from other worldviews, such as naturalism, where there is no God, or deism, or even pantheism, because all three of those views accept a fully evolutionary origin to all of life. And that, to me, causes a problem with Romans 120. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that we're without excuse. But if everything looks like it has a natural origin, how are we without excuse? It all looks natural. <laughs> What's the need for God? So, what I'm going to do here now, okay, questions now about strengths and weaknesses. Anybody want to push back on me or? Uh, <clears throat> yes? Well, you said that they, with the, they're having to be at least a thousand humans to start. Yeah, life. that's the evolutionary estimate today. Yeah. The question is basically, um, where did Cain get his wife? We're only told about Cain and Abel, but after Cain kills Abel and he's, he's banished, he has relations with his wife. Well, who, who's she? <laughs> um, well, every young age creationist will basically say that just because they're not named doesn't mean there weren't sisters already there. Because we are told in Genesis 5 that that Adam had both sons and daughters, in the plural. Again, their reproductive age was really long. Some of those next generations were born when some of these guys were 100, 200 years old. (laughs) Um, So the, the, the contention is that Cain married his sister. That sounds real creepy today. Um... Especially the younger you are in a family, the idea of marrying your sister is even creepier. Um, Try telling that to a 12-year-old boy. You're going to marry your 10-year-old sister. How about that? We we ban those kinds of marriages today for genetic reasons because each one of us in our genetic makeup carries a small number of both very harmful and some lethal mutations, but we only have one copy of them. So it's matched with a, 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 a copy of that gene that's, that's fully good, no problems with it whatsoever. This one takes control. The lethal one doesn't get expressed. Well, 
when you mate individuals like that, though, who are that closely related, each one of them is likely carrying one of those same or similar lethal or harmful mutations. So when they marry and they have children together, the likelihood of those different lethal genes matching up is greatly increased. The progeny of incestuous relationships do not have a good genetic biologic history. That's why that's illegal today. But you go back to the original couple. They did not have any mutations. They were genetically pure. So all of their children also would be genetically pure, and therefore intermarriage between siblings was no genetic problem or issue. Besides, when it says that Adam and Eve had children over a many, many year span, I mean decades, 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 okay, maybe 100, 200 years, who knows how many children Eve actually had. Um, That's a lot of pain in childbirth, but uh, again, she was biologically pure too. Um, Some of those children were raised, were born literally generations apart, and they, they weren't raised in the same home or in the same environment. So actually some of them getting older, if there was a 20, 30-year difference between them, it would be like for us marrying someone from a different family. I didn't live in the same home as those folks, and so they're, they're just different. So there are ways to, get to, to legitimately, scripturally uh, answer that, that question. Yes? Uh, the first question was, uh, wouldn't it be possible to have children before the fall? And yes, absolutely it would. Like I said, we have no idea what time frame there was from the creation to fall. Uh, it says that one of the weaknesses for recent creation is it must have all organisms in the fossil record alive at one time. I'm not sure I understand that. Well, if something is now presented to us as a fossil... And the the recent creationists are saying all of these fossil-bearing sedimentary layers are the result of Noah's flood. Then everything we find in those layers was alive just before the flood. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the fossil. If it died even a year before the flood came, it would have decayed. You wouldn't nothing would be fossilized. So in order to have those fossils there, they had to have been alive on the planet just as the flood came. So is that saying that fossils are all created because of the flood? Because that's, that's their contention. There's no fossils that... Would... Except for some of the more recent ages. For instance, they would say that all of the... Um, Supposed ancestors of humans going back three, four, five, six million years, those are post-flood deposits. But all the way, almost everybody, all the way through the age of the dinosaurs, so up until at least 65 million years ago by standard geology dating, everything before that in the fossils was buried as a result of the flood of Noah. Make sense? Understand it? <laughs> okay, I... I Yes, one more, last one. Considering, uh, you, know, you mentioned accelerated radioactive decay and genetic mutation, what, what is your opinion on uh, the decline of uh, life expectancy 
Oh, for humans? Yes. Yeah. Um, he's asking about the decline in life expectancy for humans, where in the Genesis 5 uh, genealogies, they're all going from 800 to 900 plus years, and suddenly when you get in after uh, the flood, Noah only lives about 600 years only, and there's, a, there's almost an exponential decline in the ages until you get to Abraham, where suddenly now it's 120. Um, well... There's actually a good genetic reason for that. Um, if you're dealing with the genetically pure from Adam through to basically Noah, um, mutations are very slowly building up in the population. Now, Noah had a tough time. So, his, <laughs> I mean, he, it took him 100 years to build that stupid boat, you know. So, I mean, that, that's going to that's gonna wear you down a bit, you know. Um, so 600 years for him. Yeah, that, that, that might explain it. But why does it decrease afterwards? Well, remember now that the human population is being replenished by six individuals. Noah's three sons and their wives. And each of them now will have accumulated some mutations in their gene pool. And since you have now three brothers, um, there's some similarity of mutations within that family line. So what we've been able to suggest, and, I, and I've actually uh, talked about this uh, just in a, in a casual sort of way with other geneticists at the University of North Texas and said, yeah, if that's the situation, you could get a quick decrease in, in the uh, life expectancy just from basically inbreeding of the human population. Yeah, I, I got I to move on for now, Okay. All right. Um, there's another article on our website that I've titled Why You Believe in Creation, so you can look it up at probe.org. Um, the, uh, this uh, article is also contained in the book, which is available on the book table uh, through Shannon, so please visit Shannon, uh, Creation, Evolution, and Modern Science. Uh, and the, the article from here is, is in, that I'm talking about here is in that, uh, in that collection. Um, a number of reasons to reject evolution beyond the, the just um, interpretation of, of Genesis. Genesis as a whole is historical in nature. And those who want to say that Genesis 1 through 11 is not historical, but starting in Genesis 12 it is, well, you've got a problem. Because Abraham is listed in Genesis 11. He's one of the patriarchs. Um, and there's a connection with him back to Noah. And then there's a connection of Noah back to Adam. So if you're going to say that Genesis 12 is history, but Genesis 11 somewhere, well, where does the history stop as you go back in time? Or where does it actually start? Does it start with Abraham's father? What about his father? What about his father? Where do you draw the line? It's a very uh, capricious place to try to draw that line somewhere. The evolutionary process itself is, is selfish by nature. We'll compare that to the character of Christ, and we'll talk a little bit more about theistic evolution. Um, you know, Jesus talks about Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the flood, as historical events. Uh, those scriptures are given for you there. Uh, he refers to each of the first seven chapters of Genesis in historical context, and it is written as an historical narrative. Um, the question, could God have used evolution as his means to create? Well, one of the things I learned very concretely as a graduate student at University of North Texas, which was in an evolutionary biology program, and yes, I was a, a spy, if you, if you want to put it that way, um, but they all knew I was a spy, so that was okay. Um, you learned that evolution is a very selfish 
and wasteful, inefficient process. I say it's selfish because what, what the evolution, what natural selection revolves around is the individual, first of all, being driven to survive, and secondly, to reproduce. When you ask an evolutionist what, what is the, the goal of any living organism, that's what he'll say, survive, reproduce. And so everything about the organism, both its biology, its physiology, even its behavior, has been selected for over, over, over time to allow you to survive and reproduce. And it's selfish in that nature because you're only going to help somebody else survive and reproduce if it's also going to help you because you do that. So everything about who you are and what you do is ultimately selfish in nature. And what we have to ask ourselves is that is God's character reflected in this evolutionary process? Um, If you looked at some of the paintings of Van Gogh in his later life, where he was clearly depressed, he was suicidal, um, cut off his ear, uh, the guy was very much in trouble. And you don't have to be an art critic to look at the progression of his paintings and say, this man's mind was disintegrating. Something's not right. And it's not just about what he painted, but it's how he chose to paint, the color he used, the brush strokes, because almost all of his individual brush strokes you can discern on his canvases. You can see how he was bringing it about. That alone can tell you something about how his mind was operating. So the same thing can apply to God's creation. If evolution is what he used to create, that should reflect something about God's character. But when we investigate that, when we look at the person of Jesus, um, when you look at the uh, Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the meek. The meek, this is all talking about the individuals in an evolutionary context to get trampled over because it's selfish, it's the strong, it's those, that's what survives, not the meek and the peacemakers and the poor in spirit. And I'll put those in your outline on that next slide. Um, and when you look at Romans 8, 19 to 22, where it talks about the idea that nature is groaning and it's been subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of something outside of it. Most interpret that being the fall, the fall imposed on nature, this uh, groaning, this need for redemption. And to hear nature's groaning, meaning the evolutionary process, and interpret that as the song of creation, to me, is to be ignorant of both God and nature. Uh, We've talked about this some, um, God having to create, so I'm going to skip that here. You've got that. uh, But again, and I've talked about this already, uh, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness, wickedness of men, Romans 1.18. So something is true. And people are suppressing it. Verse 19, that what is true is known to everyone because God has made it plain or known to them. So God has gone to some effort to make sure that something which is true, which we're all suppressing, well, it's plain to you. You don't have to think about it a whole lot. And what is it? Well, it's verse 20. It's the creation. That is why we are all without excuse, by simply observing what has been made. And if it all came about by natural process, well then, what is it we're looking at? How do we know there is a God? What does that tell us? All right. Final thoughts. 
I got to make you laugh a little bit towards the end here, right? I might be able to get this done right at noon, but I may have to go a little bit over. So what I'm going to do, oh, somebody else, would you start handing out the, oh, they're all there. Thank you. Well, on the table, or there's a table in the back that you could leave it on as well. So, um, all or nothing isn't. What does that mean? Well, this comes from a Christian who is a geologist. At the time, he was a day-age creationist. He says, in talking about God and the Bible and, and science, he says, in the same way, I should be very much surprised if we had a unified knowledge of both the Bible and the world that had no loose ends. That sounds kind of weird. What kind of loose ends is he talking about? Especially when he says the Bible. Are there loose ends? Well, somebody want to explain God's sovereignty, man's responsibility for sin to me. You got that one all figured out? What about the incarnation? God is one, Jesus, 100% man, 100% God. You got that figured out? Uh, you know, there are some things we don't really fully understand. One God, three persons. Yikes. None of our analogies measure up. <laughs> they can all fail one way or another. So there are some loose ends. There are things that the Scripture says are true, but we really don't understand very well. We can't really explain. The same thing is true of science. There isn't a physicist in the world that can explain to you how light can, can act as both a particle and a wave. When we measure light, we can only measure one of those forms or the other. We can't measure both at the same time, but the observations tell us that light is both a particle and a wave. Nobody can explain to you how that's true. <laughs> so science has some of its own loose ends. The Bible has some loose ends. There are things that we know are true, but we can't really explain them. He says, why should theology and natural science ever be expected to agree fully when each by itself has plenty of loose ends? We get <laughs> too wrapped up in a wad, if you will, because the Bible and science, they have to agree. Well, I'll admit, I, I like it when they do, but I'm also willing to admit that there's some mystery in both. And we, there's no reason to expect a complete coming together and a complementarity of what we learn from science and what Scripture tells us. Don't ever expect the two in our lifetimes with our finite knowledge and ability to understand to have everything make sense. He said, we should not fall into the trap of thinking that somehow Scripture is more reliable or trustworthy if it is at every point backed up by scientific evidence. Nor should we somehow suspect that Scripture may be trust, untrustworthy if science does not back it up at every point. We're not going to get there. We're just not. And so back off a little bit. Uh, give God some, some room for some mystery. Francis Schaeffer put it this way. We must take ample time, and sometimes this will mean a long time, to consider whether the apparent... <laughs> The apparent clash between science and revelation means that the theory set forth by science is wrong or whether we must reconsider what we thought the Bible says. That sounds like fighting words. <laughs> reconsider what we thought the Bible says? Well, I have an example for you where we've done exactly that. Anybody know the sculpture? i tell you who it is. <laughs> It's Michelangelo's Moses, and it's a, a sculpture outside a tomb of one of the, the popes from the, 
late, early 16th century, I think. And, um, well, there's just something really odd about this sculpture where students of art history will go to see this just for this very reason. There's something very strange. If you look at the top of his head, those aren't curls of hair coming out. Turns out that the Hebrew word for Shekinah glory was not fully understood in Michelangelo's time. And here's a close-up for you. Yeah, those are horns. Those are horns coming out of Moses' head. Why? Because the word was similar for the root word for goat horns. Scripture says Moses had goat horns. So that's how I will sculpt him. (laughs) We put horns coming out of his head because that's what the Bible says. Other ancient Hebrew texts that were not of the Bible, but were talking about other things, were later discovered, and the same word was used in a context that clearly meant a shining, radiant glory. Ah, that makes a lot more sense. Hmm? Yeah, his face was shining. That's why he put a veil over himself, not to cover up the horns, <laughs> but to, to dim the glow. And I'm sure there were a lot of biblical scholars. Oh, thank goodness. This was so embarrassing. <laughs> but what did we do? With new information, we changed what we thought the Bible said. And sometimes, especially with this most ancient text of Genesis, coming from the very beginning, communicated orally for generations until Moses finally wrote it down, this is going to be talking about things and using words that I have to say, you know, we might not really fully understand all that's being said. We might not until I get to heaven and I sign up for Creation 101 and I say, I want to see the video in real time. I got all the time. <laughs> I, I want to see all the all the event. I want. What did you What did you do? I mean, how, how did this work? <laughs> Apparent age, and I'll close with this: If there is creation out of nothing, there must be an appearance of age. And I already mentioned the idea of the fruit on the trees. Adam was created as an adult, even though he was only a few seconds old. Now, some of us in this audience may quibble with how old we thought he looks. I just turned 60, so I think he looked, you know, late 50s, early 60s. Some younger folks would say, oh, no, he was 25. Come on, give me a break. He was a young man. Thanks. But is there a point where apparent age becomes deception? And here's where I'm going to talk about this some. Galaxies, everyone admits, are, what, are millions of light years away. The distances are real. Now, when I say a light year, that's the distance light will travel in a year's time. So when something is a million light years away, what that means is it, ta- it takes a million years for that light to reach the earth. So it's a vast distance. Now, our own galaxy is said to be about 100,000 light years across. So even some of the light from the stars in our own galaxy will take far more than 10,000 years to reach us. Now, we say these distances are real because even if you just take our own galaxy and you compress it down to a size where all the light from all the stars could reach the Earth, say, within a 1,000 years, 
there would be no nighttime sky. Everything would be so bright, so brilliant, and we'd also be dead. (laughs) The radiation and the gravitational disruptions would just make this place completely uninhabitable. So even the recent creationists recognize that these vast distances are real. So there are some galaxies that are indeed, they would admit, that, that it's at least 100 million light years away. It took 100 million years for that light to get here. So the, the, the usual suggestion about this is that God not only created the stars and the galaxies, but he also created the light from all of those sort of in transit. So immediately when Adam was created, he could see all the stars and all the galaxies if he had a telescope. Okay. So the light was created in transit. And still some, many use that, that uh, notion. There's a little problem with that. We have observed what you could call dynamic events such as supernova or exploding stars from even distant galaxies, not just within our own galaxy. If the galaxy is even just 100,000 light years away, and they must be much farther than that, we must conclude the event that we're seeing never happened. Why is that? Well, we've observed all the event with all the accompanying radiation, but there hasn't been 100,000 years of time if the universe is only 6,000 years old for all of that light to get here. So God would have to created the supernova event also in transit. So when, by the time it reaches the Earth in our 20th century and we see this exploding star, well, that light was created just 5,000 light years down the road or 6,000 light years down the road so we could see it today. But that also tells you that event never actually happened. Do you understand? Make sense? It's like seeing Adam's birth on video. Yeah, Adam wasn't born. <laughs> he was made out of dust of the ground. Well, why are we seeing this supernova from a galaxy we know is too far away for us to see it in the amount of time that the universe has existed? So yeah, we have, there has to be an appearance of age, but it doesn't solve everything in the context of events and great distances and, and long extended times. We need to respect creation's mystery And I hope what you've been able to see is that those who might hold different views from you do have, at least in their minds, good reasons to hold those views, and the view you particularly hold has its own problems. And and, and my particular view, by the way, I, I have no sympathy whatsoever for the theistic evolution view, none. Uh, but as far as recent creation, progressive creation, uh, I'm, a, I'm a, well, I'm confirmed fence sitter. Uh, one of the reasons, the one I give you right here, is that conservative evangelical Old Testament scholars differ themselves on how to interpret Genesis 1. I have no Hebrew experience. I have no Old Testament studies or anything like that. So if these guys can't figure it out among themselves... Who am I to say you guys are wrong and you guys are right? And the same thing with physicists and geologists. I know some on both sides of the fence. Physicists, geologists who are progressive creationists, old earth. 
physicists, creationists, and geologists who are young age creationists, and, and that's where they're staying. And they can't agree with how to interpret the scientific evidence. Well, I'm not a physicist or a geologist. I'm just a biologist. So how am I going to look at this stuff and say, you're wrong and you're right? I'm saying that even for me, someone who's been studying and reading and talking about this stuff for now almost 40 years, I still can't make up my mind between recent creation and progressive creation. And I do. I see the positives and negatives of both approaches. Um, So if we can't figure it out, how do you expect your 10-year-old child to figure it out? (laughs) What I basically tell parents is that when this question starts coming up, communicate as best you can what you think and and why you, you hold to this particular view of things. But let them know that there are other Christians out there who look at things very differently and who are very educated, they're very godly men and women, and they're, they're not trying to destroy the church <laughs> just because they have a different view than we do. Okay. Hopefully you've had some time to fill out your... I, can, I will answer questions, but if you need to go, please feel free to get out and fill your evaluation, and I'll take a few questions from here, and then I'll close it down. Yes, sir. He's asking if progressive creationists have a little bit more trouble with interpreting scripture than the recent creationists. Well, at one of these meetings where I was uh, a moderator between the progressive and the young age cre- and the recent creationists, um, one of the progressive creationists, who's a engineering professor, uh, written and studied this stuff all his life, he's now retired, he basically said that, yeah, you, you young age folks have, the, have a leg up on us on how you deal with scripture. We, he, he just admitted it. You, you've, got the, you've got the better scriptural understanding than we do. So if you're riding the fence, wouldn't you lean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty sneaky, I tell you. Um, Repeat Oh, the question was that, that, um, that since that's the case, that the young age creation have the better um, view of scripture, then as myself as a fence sitter, wouldn't I tend to lean more that direction of the young age? Um, well, no, I don't. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm going to maintain a straight up and down fence-sitter position. I'm the same leaning. Um, and part of that, honestly, is because of my scientific training. Um, you know, I, I, it, it causes me a real hesitation to hear recent creation biologists talk about that God had to intentionally instill genetic variation into all the species and all the kinds bef- at creation before the flood, and somehow that genetic variation was not expressed until after the flood. Well, you're, you're introducing another miracle here that Scripture doesn't give us any indication was there. Um, so just from my training as a biologist, that rapid evolution after the flood is a problem. And I don't think that's a good way to solve it. At least it doesn't seem legitimate to me. So that's, again, a reason that from my scientific perspective, I look at that and I say, you know, I, I, I have great respect here, but that just doesn't work. Yes? history with the 
world non-biblical view, this may be a whole other class, but, you know, how, if we, you know, we, we're taught here that we're supposed to be able to um, equip ourselves so that we're able to defend, support, explain our beliefs. So if we believe in creation, mm-hmm. we're talking to someone that thinks, you know, I went to Corona the other day, and that was totally <laughs> No. And so I was having a really hard time reconciling that. How do we reconcile that? Well, the question is about um, no matter what uh, Christian view we have of science and earth history, how do we use that to interact with the secular world and those who do fully accept evolution and completely outside of a Christian context? Um, Well, let's just say you can't all go back and have 12 years of graduate education like I did. <laughs> um, and there are going to be some things which you're probably not really going to be able to fully understand. But I think what we can do is at least, um, especially if we do have friends where this is an issue, that seems to me to be a push from God that says you need to be a little bit more acquainted with this than you might ordinarily think or what would be preferable to you. You've got friends who have this as a question. And, for instance, there is a, a, a daily uh, blog from the Discovery Institute, very simple, it's called Evolution News and Views. And they are always uh, commenting about certain things that have come up in the evolutionary lit- literature from an intelligent design perspective. And so those are meant for the, for the lay audience. Sometimes, if you want to dig deeper, they provide all the resources, references, everything you can dig deeper if you want. But I think it, it's helpful then for, for us to have at least a a foundational knowledge of the resources that are available where you can direct somebody to go to. And it might not necessarily be that you're ever going to be the one who can really engage with them on this question. But you can help point them to places they can go to help find some of those resources and, and answers. Um, I've recently taken up a... Uh, a responsibility from the Discovery Institute to write one of those evolution news and views articles every week for the end till the end of the year. So you'll be if you follow that, you'll see my name pop up there every once in a while. What was that was Evolution News and Views. Just put that into a search engine and it'll take you to it. One more question before I just let you all go. Anybody else? Yes, sir, back there. The fashion, okay. Okay. The question is about a book titled "The Lost World of The Lost World of Genesis," where what it suggests is that even the word for create uh, isn't really saying creation out of nothing, but it's that God fashioned things. So I guess that would mean that Eve was created, but Adam was just made, um, as I said earlier. Um, yeah, I'm not familiar with the book. I haven't read it, uh, but that is a um, that is a criticism of some of the recent creation interpretations. Where in Genesis one, you find not not just the word create, but you do find the word for made or bring forth. Uh, so create is only used, I think, in Genesis one one. God created the heavens and the earth. It's used. Um, when God creates animal life and when God creates humans. It's only really used three times. And that, most Hebrew scholars will tell you, that really does mean 
God-only activity. Only God could do this, and they assume it usually means from, the, from elsewhere in the Old Testament, I think from Isaiah, that it means out of nothing. Okay. Um, but the other ones, made and formed or brought forth, those could be used in an evolutionary kind of context where things are kind of happening with natural process uh, in conjunction with God's activity. Um, but yeah, that, that's a way that some would suggest that uh, Genesis 1 was never meant to be um, creating out of nothing. I, I don't think it works very well because the word for create in Hebrew is bara, and every place else in the Old Testament where bara is used, God is doing something spectacular and miraculous. Okay, last one. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. Uh, so what is the explanation of where those thousand, were they? That's, that's an, the, the thousand that the human population started from is an evolved population from an ape-like ancestor. Okay. Yeah. So that ape-like ancestor had a thousand, or those, had a thousand, I'm trying to, that ape-like creature had a thousand offspring that all had the same mutation, or there were a colony of ape-like creatures that were all the same, that they had offspring, that each of those offspring had similar traits and mm. mutations, that then you put those thousand together and you, they all created the modern Okay, race. yeah. The question is about what I mentioned earlier, that some evolutionists are saying that the human species uh, developed from a population of at least a thousand individuals. And what he's trying to ask is, well... What were the, where did they come from, and what, how did that really work? Um, well, as I said, it's based, it's based on the amount of genetic variation we currently have. And knowing that through 100,000 years of time, some genetic variants will die off and disappear, and in order, therefore, to have the number that we have today, the amount of genetic variation we have today, you'd need at least 1,000 individuals to carry that much genetic variability to bring us what you have today. Now, those were 1,000 individuals who were all of one population, one species. Homo sapiens. They were an interbreeding population. So all of humanity comes from those 1,000 people. Now it might end up being that some of those individuals, because of their, their progeny didn't survive very well, didn't reproduce very well, that they're not represented in the human population now. But there have been studies in the past where... Uh, there's a type of DNA in all of your cells in, in a certain organelle called the mitochondria. And the mitochondria has its own circular piece of DNA. And when sperm and egg fuse, the mitochondria come only from the egg. The sperm has no mitochondria in it. So all of our mitochondrial DNA is, is inherited maternally. And what they've done, this is about 30 years ago now, they did a study and looked at all of the variations in human mitochondrial DNA from populations all around the world. And they began to calculate, okay, and look at what does that, if we go back in time, what does that end up telling us? Well, their conclusion, and the title of the article was called Mitochondrial Eve, 
and they were able to trace back and say that the human population, maternally at least, descends from a single individual about 50,000 years ago. And so years after that, they decided, well, let's just do that with the Y chromosome since that's only inherited paternally. So we'll start looking at the genes and we'll do the same thing, you know, look at the populations all over the world, compare the Y chromosome uh, genes and so forth, and what do we get? Well, there's a Y chromosome, Adam. But he lived about 30,000 years in a different time period than mitochondrial Eve. So what I like to say, okay, they're not exactly saying there was an Adam and an Eve at the same time, but they're a lot closer than what we've been before. <laughs> there was one of each that seemed to have been the ones that uh, natural selection seemed to favor, whatever. But uh, the fact that they lived literally tens of thousands of years apart doesn't really help us in terms of, you know, biblical Adam and Eve, but yeah, it's close. Close enough for science. <laughs> All right, thanks very much.